Hello, everybody who's on video. Hello, everybody's in the room. Um, this is yet another installation of our ongoing Plant Film Friday series, which I'm really excited about. Uh, so I'm Jennifer Clark. I'm a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm part of the North American Plant Phenotyping Network and the um, NSF um, Big Data Hub uh, Spoken Digital Agriculture, which is, which is helping to sponsor this series. Uh, so this is a continuation of the series that was hosted this summer at Ohio State. Uh, we're recording all the videos, so everything is posted on the, on the web page when we're finished. Uh, and we have today's lecture, which I'm super excited. And then we have two more lectures, so we're going through the end of October. So for all the people like me, you can't keep track of which day it is. We have today and then two more lectures. Um, so very happy to introduce uh, Harkamo Walia, who is um, associate professor in our Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. Um, he's been involved in multiple, very large, multi-institutional, uh, multi-state projects that involve plant phenotyping. He was very integral in, in getting the um, automated plant phenotyping system that we have here at the University of Nebraska. And his latest project is uh, an EPSCOR project with, um, with Arkansas and Kansas um, to establish a wheat and rice center for heat resilience. So without further ado, I welcome Park Mall. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, for the introduction. Uh, and hello, everybody. Um, is there a way we could actually check that they're seeing this? Okay. Yes, I'm going to check it right now. Yes, they can see. So, the lights a little bit so that's easier to see the quad. Go ahead. Okay, try the, try the keyboard. You can move the keyboard. It's wireless. Uh, not, this is not. So, so my lab is interested in working on abiotic stress tolerance uh, and has been for a while. And uh, we were we were trying to always look at whole plant physiology and try to link that to genetic radiation and you know physiological and molecular mechanisms that underlie some of the uh, you know the stress responses. So when phenomics came about and you know UNL invested you know fairly significant effort into developing the infrastructure and the skill set around phenomics, uh, I was really excited. And one of the, the things that I uh, did immediately was to try and understand uh, one of the salinity uh, uh, stress responses in, in rice. That's a topic that I had worked on. Uh, uh, that's a topic that I had worked on for my uh, graduate research. So it was pretty dear to me, so I thought, well, this would be a really nice opportunity to test this system out. 
So today I'm going to talk to you about um, you know some of the image-based genomics approaches and some of the things uh, that are not imaging but still you know very large-scale phenotyping efforts uh, in trying to understand the SOC responses uh, in rats. So why salt? Um, uh, salinity is, uh, is a big problem for agriculture globally. This map just shows you the dark areas where uh, you know, the soil is largely affected by uh, salinity stress. Uh, salinity accumulates because of several reasons, just the property of the soil, uh, poor irrigation quality, as well as regions lying very close to the uh, to the ocean can also experience uh, seawater ingress. So uh, the other aspect is that every time farmers irrigate, there's uh, salt in the in the water. So irrigation itself brings um, you know uh, salt to the to the to the root zone. So there's estimates which are somewhat dated. Uh, uh, you know that put about 12% of the global food production is affected by salt stress. And in case of rice, it's even uh, more. Uh, rice is uh, is the most important crop for global food security. However, rice also is the one of the most sensitive cereal crops. And further, as if that was not enough, like rice also is um, grown in many coastal areas in Asia that feed uh, the disproportionately poor. Uh, people of the of the world, so those areas are more susceptible to seawater ingress and you know um, and poor irrigation quality. So, as I said, you know this is a figure uh, I used for the first time when I gave a presentation on salinity as a graduate student, and you know and it's it's, uh, it's from work that Ron Mons uh, and others did in Australia in 80s and 90s, and it really shows you. Uh, in the most simplistic way, how a plant, plant's growth rate may be affected by salt stress. When uh, a plant experiences salt, if you apply salt, uh, the growth rate drops uh, quite you know, quickly, within a few hours or minutes, depending on the level of salinity, and then it kind of stabilizes, and then it, uh, you start to see further decline over an extended period of time. So the first drop that you see typically see in, uh, in, in plants and specifically in cereals uh, is primarily osmotic phase. So it's due to osmotic stress where <coughs> not as much the ability salt affecting uh, the, uh, the plant. It's more about the plant's inability to extract water when it, the, the root zone is highly saline. And subsequently that salt moves in. And in this study I'm going to talk, when I say salt, it's mostly, you know, it's, I'm talking about sodium chloride, so sodicity were be more technically close, uh, accurate. And so then the salt moves in into the plants and it starts affecting processes at the cellular level. And that's the ionic phase. So this has been there and you know there's ideas about you know that osmotic adjustment and tissue tolerance and ability to keep sodium out of uh, uh, you know of the cells or tissues that are more sensitive for photosynthesis and other growth processes. Uh, so the general idea uh, uh, is that you have this, and you can measure this, and you know, this graph uh, was captured primarily to represent the data that was, you know, where you were destructively sampling plants, and you have to sample them every few hours or every day to 
get a better sense of this. But when you want to link genetic mechanisms that underlie this physiological process, you know, all of a sudden it creates a big bottleneck. You could have for genetic mechanisms or genetic variation, you need to associate them with these processes. And to do that, you need many, many, you know, you need a population, a few hundred, uh, or if it's association analysis, you probably need even bigger uh, population. So doing that manually, like just destroying each genotype of the set of 300 genotypes every day to look at growth is, is quite challenging. I mean, you could do it, but imagine the size of the greenhouse you would need to do that. So with the imaging, you know, uh, and also talking to some colleagues in Australia, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially Mark Tester, it just clicked to me, okay, you know, this is something that, you know, I've always wanted to do and we can do it. So with the system. So what we also had the benefit of is that rice was the first crops species to be sequenced in 2004. And, uh, and then because of that, there was a lot of genomic resources that were built uh, in the US and Asia. And one of the things that's within the cultures group and you know, people at, uh, uh, in Arkansas, researchers at Arkansas did, was they um, you know, collected and they had this rice diversity panel, which has about 400 diverse genotypes from 82 countries. And we used about 380 of these genotypes for screening for salt tolerance at early coloring stage. And uh, so this, uh, these genotypes, uh, you know, as you can see, represent the indicas, the os, the temperate japonica, the aromatic rice, and the tropical uh, rice. And you can see the spots on the map where they are coming from and the number of genotypes. So here's an experimental design. Uh, this is an experimental design that, I'm, uh, that is shared between the experiments that were done with the phenomics experiments that were done with imaging. Uh, and also, this exactly same setup was uh, with a different growth media was used for just you know uh, high volume, non-automated, you know, laborious uh, phenotyping. Um, because when we ventured into this uh, into this project, you know, imaging sounded exciting, exciting, but it also was you know there was a nervousness about you know whether what if nothing came out. So we actually planned for both those experiments just in case. So the experimental design is uh, is that you go plant for up to 10 days, and then we do a stepwise increase in salt, uh, salt to 90 millimolar. And for a very sensitive variety, that should probably drop the yield by, if it were to maintain, it would drop the yield by about you know, 70, 60%. So it's a fairly decent, gradually imposed sauce press uh, in soil media in the in a, in a, in a, in a, you know in a high throughput phenotyping facility. So general idea, so we collected images and there are multiple camera types, but the general idea was that if you use RGB images to capture the growth rate, uh, then that would be you know, equivalent to the osmotic phase. So the faster the, the, you know, the, the number of pixels change, that we could use that to estimate growth rate. And similarly, the, for the ionic phase, uh, we were using a fluorescence camera, which impinges uh, a blue light that's very, you know, that's absorbed by chlorophyll. Uh, so if there's a lot of chlorophyll, you're going to get a, a, a dull reddish color. But if there's senescence due to ionic effects because the salts entered into the leaf and it's, you know, it's having a tissue toxicity issues. So in that case, you would have less chlorophyll. So more of the green light, blue light would be reflected back and would show up as orange or more bright colored pixels. So I'm going to uh, 
try and come back to these two aspects uh, uh, in terms of associated analysis, but let's look at what the growth data tells us. So this is a box plot which shows on the x-axis the days of imaging, um, and uh, and on the on, on the y-axis we have the total number of pixels, and the two red uh, lines show the when the sort was applied. Uh, so even here the, uh, we can see that the the controlled uh, non-stress box plots for the entire panel uh, start to diverge from the sort-stressed gray boxes uh, by about the third day after reaching the final, uh, you know, uh, sort level. So this showed that the yes, you could there are significant differences and you can detect them. Uh, but of course, you know, the the beauty of the system is if we could actually distinguish genotypes within the panel. Uh, you know, whereas if this is just showing that you know, cumulatively there's an impact of soft stress uh, on most of the genotypes uh, by third day. So here's an instance of uh, what the, the data would look like for you know from, from one experiment. So this experiment was done in three replicates. So one of the replicates. Uh, so you have two lines. Beha three from Korea and Kihogo is an African rice line. And as you can see that the Beha three starts to indicate a drop in growth rate uh, fairly early, probably not statistically significantly, but even before you reach the final concentration. Mm -hmm. And whereas Kihogo seems to have a, you know, a response where, where the ratio of the control, uh, sort to control, uh, projected shoot area, so the number of pixels for sort divided by the number of pixels for control uh, tends to be very close to one. So, so, so these are two extremes that you can you know, look at that from our when we you know, do a histogram, pick the one, one from one end and the other from the other end. So these, that's how we selected these two genotypes. So next, we worked with uh, uh, our former colleague uh, Dong Wang. Uh, who was uh, you know, thinking about ideas for longitudinal mapping. Uh, that's an approach or functional GWAS. That was an approach that's been used for you know, animal science, for milk quality over a period of time, or trees, where you can go in and you know, every few months or every year for 15 years take measurements and use those to map, uh, you know, uh, for phenotypes to use those phenotypes for mapping uh, uh, analysis. So for Dom, basically, there was he assumed a, a sigmoid uh, curve response where at the beginning of the stress there's no difference between the uh, between the control and, and the thought stress lines around here and that over a period of time there's a response where you know there's a decline in growth rate and at some point it stabilizes uh, so that's kind of his that was his take on the on the data set that we gave him uh, where we had extracted information from the uh, from the RGB images. For growth rate, so he sort of defined this as a square root of the area under the sort stress over uh, over the area under control as its sort response. Uh, I don't want to, uh, I, you know, I skip the slides for showing where the functional you know, equations are. But essentially, what he did for his assessment analysis was uh, two main things: uh, because the growth rate on any given day, let's say on day uh, seven or let's say on day ten. Uh, is not independent of the growth rate on nine, and the, the growth rate on uh, on day eleven uh, is not independent of ten. So he accounted for that, 
and also rice has a very deep subpopulation structure. So he you know, introduced the kinship matrix to you know come for that, and then he performed assertion analysis. Uh, at that point, this panel had uh, 44k SNP data set. Uh, now we have 770k SNP data set uh, that I will show in the second phase that we reanalyze that since you know the new data set from Susan's group became available between these two studies. Uh, so he used that and he uh, you know asked the question if he he went through each SNP and he asked the question if he had the the red allele let's say the major allele and the and blue allele the minor allele what would if he were to separate the growth responses and average them what would the growth response look like are they, those curves significantly different and the and these are two examples of uh, you know uh, real data that uh, he analyzed and the thing uh, that caught my attention the most is that the SNP that's represented here here the, you know it's separating the blue allele from the red allele growth curve very early on so this is more you know where we're thinking about osmotic stress in the first few days uh, more water loss and less of uh, you know, salt accumulation yet. And then there's another allele where when you separate that based on the SNP or that side, uh, the separation doesn't happen until seven or eight days. So clearly, you know, this showed us and you know, encouraged us to think about the idea that physiological mechanisms that have been classically defined can now be, you know, to some degree, be attached to genetic uh, variation. And that's because of the temporal resolution or the dynamic measurement or responses of plants to stress, in this case, stress, but I imagine that could also be done uh, in development. And in most cases, when we are looking beyond the early tillering stage, which we have also done, uh, we are starting to, we are beginning to look at the, you know, the interaction between development and stress over time. So with that analysis, he was able to identify about 90, you know, 115 SNPs representing about 90 loci. So this is just a Manhattan plot of the 12 rice chromosomes, uh, and the green um, spikes are the, you know, are the SNPs that are closest to the most significant area. And we were particularly you know, filled by some uh, SNPs right here, uh, it's one of them is, uh, this is just the, you know, the significance. So this is the, uh, the, the P value and it's quite significant. And then also uh, we were quite interested in, uh, in the chromosome one peak, even though it's not the tallest, uh, probably the most significant peak because of more recent QPL and GBAS type of studies showing that, you know, there's a lot that, uh, of zoning in by those studies in that region of the long arm of chromosome one. And we also had another reason that I would talk about uh, when I discussed the, you know, the, the fluorescence data. So what we, so for growth rate, you know, you can count pixels and it's, there's continuity from one day to the other, unless, you know, you're plants in a weird angle and you start to lose pixels. But in case of fluorescence, uh, what we found was that we were, when we were trying to look at the intensity differences between control and and uh, and stress plants for the fluorescence, we are being, you know, we're looking mostly in the red range. Uh, so we're not looking uh, R, G, and B, but we're looking more like um, just the just the red range. In that case, we found it more useful and more 
and the analysis is more sensitive if we were to break the range from 0 to 255 into smaller bins and then ask the question, uh, rather than asking the question for the entire plant, you know, each specific bin, uh, is there a difference within that bin uh, between control and solid? And on that basis, uh, we were able to find identify bins that sometimes were contiguous, like you know, bin 53 and 54. Uh, uh, they indicated that the, that once we break it into bins, rather than looking at the entire red range of pixels, you start to pick up signals that are fairly robust and repeatable across three replicates. Uh, for instance, uh, this is a heat map that just sort of shows exactly what I talked about, that there's these some, uh, you know, arbitrarily, you know, well, it's, uh, we selected these bins to be more sensitive in terms of temporal uh, signal, and the minus here is just before the, you know, the start, and then these are the days of imaging after salt was applied. Uh, and we can see, for instance, the bin 65, uh, has a higher darker color, and that's just the p value, so it's a heat map for p value that shows. But even by day six, you start to see significant shift in specific things rather than like entire plant uh, differences. And you know, when you observe these plants by six days, given our stress was very moderate, it was not intense, and it kind of like was dropping salt on the plant, uh, we typically don't see any yellowing or anything by visually looking at it. So we're, you know, so that, uh, you know, so the fluorescence camera adds a value that you probably could not even gain from, you know, directly measuring, you know, harvesting and grinding and measuring, uh, you know, pigment values from the tissue. So, so that was a nice uh, uh, use of fluorescence camera uh, in our mind for the ionic stress. Uh, so then, uh, because these significance or the of the difference between solid and control for these bins can show up for three days and then not show up because maybe the rest of the plant pixels catch up, so it's not a huge difference. So we can't really have a like a curve that could represent the response because there's you know you may only have significance for five days and then it may come back or it may not come back at the end of the experiment. So in that case, we actually went in and did what a traditional GWAS would look like, where we took each time point and we uh, and for each bin value we tried to map. So here's an instance for a, a specific bin 41 or color classification, uh, you know, 41. Uh, we where this is on day seven. Uh, you know, this is the arbitrary you know, significance p value uh, line. And then by day 10, you start to see some, you know, evidence emerging. And then by day 16, uh, the peak of chromosome one starts to kind of break away from the threshold. And also something on uh, chromosome 12. By day 20, that's close to the, the you know, the, the last day or second last day of experiment. The peak on chromosome one is very significant. So this, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that the, the peak on chromosome one is the one that we also saw in our growth rate and it's been observed by at least a couple of papers in the last two and a half, three years um, uh, to be a location for salt stress. So we decided to focus on that. And uh, so here's just the SNPs in that region. Uh, uh, when you zoom in, it's about 5 MB. And we, so, so what we've done as a follow-up for this is the uh, we also had RNA-seq data from about 92 
uh, sessions under control and saw stress. So about 400 uh, RNA-seq samples that we were able to mine and ask the question in terms of are there any genes that respond to saw stress or are inherently different between genotypes. And based on several analysis, we were able to identify a calcium transporter that we thought, uh, well, one calcium transporter and a couple of other expressed genes that we thought would be good candidates to pursue. Um, there's some evidence about that transporter having a role in growth rate in Arabidopsis. So we figured that maybe, you know, it's, that's why we're seeing some signal uh, from the, so we rated crispocastrine uh, mutants for that. And we have about eight or nine events. Two of them are quite washed, but the others also are not washed, but they do still have you know, uh, something that we think is premature for now. So we are now in the process of, uh, we screen those mutants and we are in the process of now screening them for short tolerance. So hopefully in the future I'll be able to come in and tell you that, you know, imaging can deliver you a gene, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, if the results pan out. So, so I'm gonna, with that, you know, uh, with that thought, I'm gonna try to transition and shift gears and take you back to the era where you could have done this in 1960s if only you had 700,000 SNPs for the rice genomes. So, uh, so this is a this is a very large experiment. Uh, what we were, you know, joking the lab at that point was. Uh, it was, you know, an industrial sweatshop because at some point we had, you know, 12,000 plants growing in a greenhouse in July in Nebraska in 85 degree humidity and 85 degree temperature, and at least seven or eight people between those two, you know, those tubs for growing the the, the plants under hydroponic conditions. So it was very humid, but my lab. Uh, was you know, showed some really great character, and we were able to harvest individual uh, shoots and roots, and measure fresh rates and then dry rates, and then grind them up uh, to look for uh, traits such as sodium and potassium. And the sodium, obvious because it's called stress, but there's been evidence from some you know more breeding and old plant physiology work out of US Serenity Lab on your side that showed that in rice and other places too that uh, rice may some rice uh, are can take a lot of sodium but they are able to maintain higher potassium uh, to sodium ratios so that's the, and that helps them uh, overcome some of the limitations due to salt stress. So we used about 397 thousand SNPs from the 770 740k uh, uh, SNP data set for the same uh, uh, panel that we used for uh, the imaging and perform GWAS. So I'm gonna, we had many QPLs, but what I'm gonna kind of zone, zone in on something that you know, actually worked, I think. So we looked at many traits like such as sodium content, potassium, sodium potassium ratio, shoot and root biomass, and so on. But um, uh, what we did find was a very uh, strong peak uh, in root sodium content and root sodium potassium. Uh, content. So this analysis was done by Hannah um, Lorenz's group and, uh, in collaboration with us uh, for that project. And uh, the uh, so this just shows you that on chromosome four uh, there's a big peak, and uh, for GWAS, and that explains about 15% of the variation for for root sodium content. So we call it RNC4. So this is for root sodium content on chromosome four. Uh, 
um, and we uh, so we uh, so this was specific so we zoned in and we did some haplotype analysis and which is shown here so it turns out that the RNC4 uh, you know uh, significance is quite high in this in this uh, region that stands about 575 KB region and this region had 36 haploblocks so haploblocks are groups of markers that have strong linkage so they tend to go together and uh, the rationale is that if they're going together you know that's and one has more significance than the other then the one that has more significance and staying the kinetic equation is more likely to have your uh, gene of interest or or, or any you know uh, sequence variation that could explain it so we ended up with a 9.7 kb block which only had two hkt genes uh, HKT genes have been traditionally associated with salt tolerance. Uh, they were, you know, named originally because they were thought to, you know, you know, promote potassium transport. The only major salt tolerance QTL and subsequent cloned gene in the rice so far is also an HKT on chromosome one on the short arm. Uh, so it's called the salt tolerance or the SKC1. So, uh, so that was, you know, that was done in 2005, and there's not been any, given that in fact, for some degree, there's not been as many things. So we were like, okay, you know, in this case, you don't even have to guess that, you know, most, more likely than not, these two genes, or one of those two genes could be important for the rate that we're seeing, which is, you know, sodium accumulation. Um, So we uh, looked at the at both those genes. One is HKT 1.1, and another is HKT 1.4. Uh, both are highly expressed in shoot tissues, at, but at different development stages. So HKT 1.1 is more expressed during the this is just gene expression data uh, during the you know early vegetative stage, and this is you know this part is you know the seven days after thesis, whereas HKT 1.4 is more expressed during the reproductive stage. Uh, as opposed to the early leaf uh, development stage. So that sort of indicated that maybe, you know, if we're looking at early vegetative stage, actually 1.1 maybe a more important thing. Uh, we also looked at the expression since we had, uh, at that point we had 32 accessions from the rice diversifier for which we had RNC data. So we were able to look at the read counts uh, and the, for the different alleles. So this is just recounts from, you know, if you had a T allele or a G allele for HKT 1.1, and this is for HKT 1.4, the darker color is controlled. And yeah, so basically the general idea was that the, the, uh, the higher root sodium content uh, correlated with higher transcript abundance. So that sort of indicated that expression difference could be a possible uh, explanation for the activity of these genes, and that might explain why they accumulate different alleles, accumulate different uh, levels of uh, sodium in the in the roots. And I did forget to mention that uh, plants don't have an active mechanism to stop sodium coming in, so it comes in with the water, and plants need to take up water. But then, uh, you know, some plants can either prevent the movement of sodium from the roots into the shoots, which are more sensitive, and uh, that's where the photosynthesis and other processes are happening. Or in other cases, some plants can actually flush it back uh, from the shoots into the back into the roots. 
So that's why if you have higher sodium in the roots uh, and lower in the, sh in the shoe, uh, you're more likely to be tolerant. And indica rice compared to deponica rice uh, have more, what we found was they have more root sodium. So in that context, uh, so just to bring that context, I should have mentioned that earlier. Um, so then we said, okay, if expression is the basis for this, uh, why not test that? So we have a, a salt sensitive line that we use as for transformation in the lab. So we created RNAi line events. So we have suppressed the expression of these both these genes. Uh, uh, so we had three events uh, for RNAi uh, in the uh, for FKT1, and then uh, and so these are shown here. And uh, so this is a shoot sodium content. Uh, this is the Y type. So when we suppress this gene, the amount of sodium in the shoot increases, and the amount of sodium in the root decreases. So essentially, I mean, a simplistic explanation is that this gene is involved in, in keeping the sodium or bringing back the sodium into the roots, uh, and thus making you know indica rice that are generally known to be more salt tolerant, uh, you know, salt tolerant. So at least part of the tolerance can explain. So when we did that for the HKT 1.4, the three independent events are shown here. We didn't see a difference, um, significant difference in the Y type versus the gray bars here. Um, and the for also for the roots, we didn't see a big significant difference in so, uh, root sodium content. So that sort of kind of indicated that the the uh, that sort of indicated that the HKT 1.1 could have a more contributing role for the phenotype that we are seeing. So we we then you know looked at more in detail that what was it within HKT 1.1 variants that was so we focused on that as a candidate gene and what was it in the 1.1 that was in, you know could potentially be involved in the phenotype that we were seeing. So we found several mutations, but we also, but the three, we found three non-synonymous mutations. So that's just showing you sequence alignments and uh, you know, M3, M5, M7. And when we uh, look at a predicted structure of this transporter protein, you see that you know this is where they land up those mutations. And uh, the uh, there's one here uh, M. M7 that is kind of in the cross membrane, that's probably where you know a lot of the action happens about whether moving sodium in and out. So, so, so that was the case where we were able to identify alleles. So if we had one line, uh, which is Nippon Barre, which is a well known rice line that was the first point that was sequenced, um, and we had uh, a line from China, Jisan, uh, that. Uh, you know, Jishan had all the three non-synonymous mutations, whereas Nikon Barre had none of them. So we next asked, what if if we could you know, if we could link one or more, if we could link all these three non-synonymous mutations to the effectiveness of moving sodium? So we collaborated with a, a group in France and another group and a student um, in in Montpellier, and you know they. Did some oocyte studies where they took the Nippon Barre uh, gene and you know, cDNA and they took the GSAN allele and they put it in oocytes and they exposed them to you know different levels of sodium and they measured the amount of current 
that would go across membranes. Okay, so what this showed is it's a it, you know it's a legal graph, but what it basically shows is that the takeaway message from it is that if you have those non three non synonymous mutations from G channel to you uh, that allele gets activated at a much lower voltage. So at a lower salinity level, it gets more active, and then once it does get active. Its activity is also about, you know, roughly about six times more than the nipple bar allele. So, those, so essentially, if you have those three alleles, uh, the hypothesis here is that uh, those three non-synonymous mutations, you have a more effective transporter uh, for sodium. So, this is great in whose side, but to test that hypothesis, we actually went back into rice and we took the Kikaki, the rice that is sensitive, Japonica, Protoria. And we either introduced the different bar allele, like so two events. The first two, you know, the, these are the ones where we had the nipple bar allele introduced with a native promoter. And in this case, we introduced the Z channel allele, and we asked the question of uh, do we see a difference? And uh, so it, uh, so, uh, what it shows here is that if you have the uh, the uh, the the nipple bar allele in good sodium content, you see an increase from why that course because you have each each of these events is a single property of an extra gene, you get more transport accumulation. However, if you uh, have the G-channel allele, even in plants, you like in, in planta, you get more sodium transport. So more accumulation of root sodium content. Uh, we didn't see a significant difference here. I mean we see a trend but it didn't separate out. Uh, but that sort of shows to us that you know there's a very very high likelihood that the Z channel allele and HKT 1.1 is the one that regulates the root sodium accumulation in early uh, stages of rice, rice growth. So just to summarize, uh, the uh, what we what we done is that image-based image, image or phenomics approaches have traction for SOSFES. We've done a similar study for drought that we're still analyzing. Uh, and we think that you know, if, if given in salt and drought, we think that at least these type of stresses, you know, phenomics provides a really nice traction. Look at the temporal dynamics. For a long time, physiologists and you know, agronomists and biologists in general have been looking at endpoint measurements. But this kind of brings to, you know, to for the idea that have already been there but never been tested because we didn't have the tool of, you know, you could have the same endpoint phenotype after 21 days, but the trajectory of how you know, the two different genotypes or genotypic groups responded to getting there could be quite important. So and hopefully, you know, if we do end up validating a candidate from one of those peaks, you know, that'd be you know, if you further evidence that you can use imaging approaches to go all the way to, uh, you know, individual genes. Um, so we also, it shows the complexity of the salinity trait because there's growth, there's, you know, ionic, and then, you know, so it's sort of indicated through number of loci that we identified for both these uh, traits uh, from imaging. And in terms of, you know, so there's still, you know, while this is nice and great and you know uh, fashionable, but I think there's some something to be said about just 
brute force, you know, go through per thousand plant approach. Uh, uh, and you know, that sort of gave us uh, you know, evidence that HKT 1.1 uh, could be regulating uh, the higher group sodium content in indica rice compared to Sipoinga. And that aspect could be playing a role to some degree uh, in why indica generally tend why indica generally tend to be more tolerant into salt stress than Sipoinga does. With that, I want to acknowledge clearly a, a, a very talented group of students. I didn't talk about um, um, the image analysis, but Avi Kanek, uh, an undergraduate student from computer science, uh, he worked with us developing software and image analysis protocol. Uh, Matt Campbell, this, this was uh, both these studies were part of his PhD. Um, uh, PhD, he's finished and you know, getting ready to get a postdoc. And Nanoi from Aaron Renzo's group did all the GWAS, uh, and Dong Wang did the imaging, and Shizan did the, uh, the and his uh, and his student Khan, uh, and BQ did the uh, the RNA seq analysis, and Nanoi both did the uh, um, the site work, and the first set of experiments were done in Australia with Tina Berger and uh, Ardelia Rez and her fantastic group of undergraduates uh, were you know, uh, involved in this project and they actually uh, did uh, a set of studies with the, for the first 10 days. So you, you know, I, I talked about starting from 10 days onward, but in the first 10 days or seven days were captured in a, in a smaller system for several hundred of the rice diversity towns. Um, and then Susan McCooch was kind of kind enough to give us valuable uh, SNP data set for you know things got published and Aaron who's on Minnesota um, you know led all the GWAS studies for the, the root rates. With that if you have any questions in room or online I'd be happy to answer those. I have a very basic physiology question. Yeah. So most of the time when you look at salt stress, you see that there's an initial phase of lower salt stress and then a high salt stress given. So is there a reason why that thing is done? Like you initiate with a lower salt stress and then go to a higher dose? Yeah, I think um, so if you, unless there's a tsunami or something, you know, salt accumulates gradually in the soil. So when a lot of people, you know, in the uh, a lot of people have kind of who wanted to see a phenotype would just kind of put pour in some salt saline water. What it does is that uh, in cases such as rice and also in most other species, it results in plasmolysis because it's an osmotic shock. So plasmolysis is that the plasma membrane, uh, because of the difference in high salinity outside and you know, lower solid potential outside and very, compared to inside, you know, most of the water is drawn out mm -hmm. and the plasma membrane separates and gets damaged from away from the cell wall. And it does get repaired eventually, but if you have salt there and the plasma membrane separates, then the uh, sodium can flow apoplastically. So it won't even go into the cell. It would just flow like, you know, like you were hosing down with. So that really creates a very artificial, uh, situation that really happens in in real soil or environment conditions. So 
that's why we try to do a stepwise with a day or two days of break in between. You know, typically we would do one of for, for nine millimolar when we're doing a physiological experiment, we would actually do a three step, three, six, and then have one day in between. Uh, mm -hmm. But because it's very expensive to keep growing <laughs> these plants, it costs you know, one plant every day, it costs X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to kind of balance that, not go completely osmotic shop as well as not go, you know, I mean, it, several thousand dollars just to add an extra three days. So. So that's the that's the idea for uh, that's why you sh in my opinion and in opinion of many people who've kind of done this for a long time on board launches that was you can never force on it. I have a question about how come to the ones. Yeah. I'm wondering could you estimate so the variance is learned by the both side as a function of time? Um, for some, some both sides, they may have a larger variation, they explain larger variation at the early time, some both sides may uh, yeah, I think I don't think we we separate the variance out for the imaging, but what we are doing is uh, uh, with good uh, Aurora, we're looking at various QTLs. So there's you know there's QTLs or SNPs that would explain uh, the the mean value, but then there's QTLs that would explain the variance. And they, they look uh, since that would explain the variance rather, rather than the mean. So he's doing that for endpoint measurements uh, right now. But I could see that being actually extrapolated. Uh, but as far as I know, I don't think Dom actually, yeah, but that's a good, yeah. I'm kind of, we should have talked to this. Yeah, yeah. So you want to see percent variance explained over time. Yes. As a function of time. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And yeah. you should see specific patterns. Yeah. Which you should be, for, for definitely for the growth. Yeah. Uh, you should be able to. That also, um, some can be hit this at the early stage, some can be hit this. Correct. That's right. That's right. You are able to associate with the, with the treatment. Yeah. So what Gura is doing is he's just explaining the, you know, Snips that explain the variance as opposed to the no, as opposed to they could be integral or separate from the as distinct from right. the snips that explain the mean value of the phenotype. Yeah, right, right. That makes sense. So I have a, a, a basic sort of agronomy type question. Once the soil has a certain level of salt, um, what are the mechanisms for clearing the salt out of the soil? So you could use fresh quality water to drain it below the root zone. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, you can get um, uh, the roots would grow and plants were established. And then you can, uh, you know, of course, plants would pull the water up yeah. and through soil hydraulics, you know, mm -hmm. it would start to come back up. Okay. But by that time, the crops already established. And mm -hmm. in places which have very low quality, poor water, uh, quality irrigation water, such as in Pakistan mm -hmm. or in some places in Egypt, they would actually start the crop with more expensive higher quality water, and then they would use more brackish to, uh, that's one way. The other way, if you have an issue, uh, such as things that are developing in the, in the, you know, down in Kansas and close to Nebraska water with Ogallala because they're extracting a lot of uh, uh, water from the deep and deeper water has more salinity. So they're pretty much, they could potentially lose that soil over a few years right. just because they want to grow corn instead of um, you know, in an irrigated crop rather than like a 
less profitable grain fed and winter wheat or something. So in that case, uh, well, one thing you could do is add calcium um, sulfate, I think. So yeah, adding calcium, uh, which we also did in our experiment, and uh, you know, uh, is mitigates the impact of salinity. And if you a lot of you know molecular experiments, uh, people don't add calcium, but it leads to an artifactual response to soil stress. Uh, the reason is it's artifactual because most soils in the world have, are not deficient in calcium. So calcium is already there, but you could add gypsum to, I think it's gypsum that you can add into the soil, you know, plow it in, and that also leads it. You know, it's a, it's a few-year remedy for higher salinity. Okay. Is that an option for developing countries to actually do that? That's what people actually do in some parts of the, in some counties that have that issue, where okay. I come from. They've done that in the last okay. I'm not sure if they're doing it right now, but they were doing okay. it. Uh, I guess the only other um, question that's a follow-up to, to the question about the, the data is that, you know, whether the, the data from these studies, you know, I'm assuming this is published, or at least most, some of this is published. Oh, um, it is published. Okay, so I mean, is there, is, can we access the data yeah. so that we can try new... The data is in the, uh, so maybe three years ago, uh -huh. we published the data before the publication with a DOI, uh -huh. a data store on cybers. Okay. Yeah, it was an interesting experience in the sense that, you know, this was, there's big data, right? So there's a huge file, uh -huh. but it's like the files are not huge, but there's 1 million files. Yes. And that was kind of maxing out there. So, so, it, so there's a DOI, there's a metadata, uh -huh. there's a GPS location for where it was done, and, uh, and all the, uh, the soft data, uh -huh. uh, the, the second, uh, you know, phase. That's all the, in the supplementary data set for um, for the for the plus genetics data. Oh, cool. And so, so yeah, so all the data is available. But you know, I'd be since this data is all generated with our genome, right. uh, you know, we are committed to making mm -hmm. all the data available. Okay. And, you know, and we've done so in many cases. Right. Right. Well, that's good. Um, anything else? Any other questions people have? How do we know if somebody's? I've got the chat open so I can see if somebody's asking a question, but I don't see any questions. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We will follow up next week. Are you going to leave them with a message? Or? No. I'm just going to say bye, and then we'll see you next week. <laughs>